Well, that was fun. I, I didn't say to do Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, but that was kind of fun, wasn't it? Um, there's lots of riddles there, isn't there? And I'm certainly not going to answer them all now. We're going to focus a little bit. Um, but I guess it's lovely to take a big sweep of Ecclesiastes like that and just see he really has got a, a handle on how complex and various life is. Um, but then to be able to hear the wisdom that he's saying, well, God's in control of it all and to find the joy amidst all this complexity I think is of great value to us. Well, the talk now is a kind of a step on from where we were earlier today. The first talk this morning was urging us to think about the beautiful moment that we're in and how to really be there. And this talk is more about, well, why is it that we often choose not to be there? And I'll be exploring that a bit more. So let's pray. Father, thank you for right now. Thank you for the feel of the seat underneath us, for the sounds and the sights of this room, for the person who's sitting next to us, for the taste of coffee or tea on our tongue. Father, thank you that you're here right now and that you want us to worship you and obey you and serve you and be yours right now. Help us to know more and more how to do just that. Amen. You might have heard of Annie Dillard. She's a writer who wrote a famous book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. And it's, it's an amazing book about how she spent a year at Tinker Creek watching, listening and learning. She says in the book, I want to see what I can see. And you find as you read this sort of work of biography, fiction, truth, it's, it's a really interesting mix, that she draws on the natural sciences and poetry and theology as she looks and looks and looks at trees and water and mountains and dragonflies and snakeskins and muskrats. She decides to go stalking muskrats and she spends weeks trying to work out how to see a muskrat. Now, I don't know the northern equivalent. For me, it would be, will I ever see a koala? Or will I ever see a platypus? Maybe you can think of an animal. Will I ever get to see that? Well, she discovers that she must sit incredibly still on a bridge and not move. And then one day, she sees a muskrat coming along at the very centre of the creek. She says, with all the confidence of a seaplane. And she's so thrilled after weeks to finally see a muskrat that she feels like she doesn't have to breathe for days. And over time she learns that if she sits really still, she can watch a muskrat swim onto one, to on one side of the bridge. Then if she scurries and then becomes completely still again, it won't detect that she's there and it will swim out the other side as well. She discovers that to receive the gift of creation that a muskrat is, she has to be fully available and alive right now. Now, I have, I've had one experience in my life of seeing a koala in the wild, and I can still remember it, because it was just so beautiful that there was this koala plodding across the road, and we stopped the car, and we were dead still, and we didn't say a word. We just watched this koala. And it was like time stood still and it was just us and the koala and God. 
We've been seeing today how Ecclesiastes really values the ability to be alive in the moment, but it acknowledges that that's actually hard for us. God has planted this sense of eternity in our hearts, a sense of being able to imagine past, present and future, but we've corrupted that. And we want to turn that sense to imagine and to, to realise that we belong to more than just the present. We corrupt that into a desire to gain or to master the future. But more than wanting us to live in the present, the book keep urging us, ur keeps urging us to cultivate the ability to be alive right now so that we're alive to the grace of, the, of God and alive to God himself. Now the ideas that I want to explore just now uh, aren't just in one chapter, although chapter 9 will be our main focus, but you've probably picked up that Ecclesiastes is a puzzling, rambling book. Nobody's actually completely sure of its structure and it, it just keeps visiting the same ideas over and over again. So as you read it, you've just got to sit still and wait for the muskrat to put its head out of the water. So I've sat still with Ecclesiastes and the muskrat of why we don't want to live in the, live in the present pops its head up in a, in a few different places. So here's one, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. See if you can turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? it is not wise to ask such questions. Don't you wish that every church committee you sat on adopted that as its motto for the year? We all know that attitude, don't we? That those people are, who just can't see that the current situation can be any good compared to the situation in this glorious past that they've invented in their head. Oh, we used to go and play outside. We didn't sit in front of televisions and computers. We used to know all our neighbours by name instead of this rush, rush, rush. We used to know the name of the cow that gave us our milk for the breakfast. <laughs> Trouble is, when we let our minds glorify the past, we can easily deceive ourselves about what the past was really like. A few summers ago, we had a holiday in Tasmania in January. And if you look at our photos, you'll see that we saw quaint historical buildings in a little town called Richmond. We saw dramatic rugged landscape around the Cradle Mountain area. And we went on a gorgeous Franklin River cruise into wilderness that was just beautiful. We took photos of all those things and we remember them. But we didn't take any photos of the drunk travellers who sat outside our window and kept us awake for two or three nights. <laughs> We didn't take any photos when Gerard's clothes were utterly covered in vomit in a desperate moment of car sickness. I didn't take any photos of the scungy youth hostel showers that we used and all the mould and, and the way everything was sort of dripping wet and awful. And we didn't take any photos of us handing over an extra few hundred dollars to the car hire company because someone else had scratched our hire car in a car park. You see, when we think about our holiday in Tasmania, those things have kind of gone and we only remember the good things. But what we t all tend to do as human beings is over time we filter out the negatives and we remember the positives and so we're not wise because we're not real. We're not honest about what really happened in this crazy, strange creation 
that you live in. And so I think when the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's not wise to ask such questions, he's saying, let's face it, if you become more nostalgic about the past, it's probably because you're not being utterly honest with the evidence. And books like Ecclesiastes and Job really value the person who's brave enough to be honest about the evidence. Now sometimes I might resent my life and I think, oh, we've got so many bills to pay and the bathroom's dirty and the kids are sick. Oh, why can't we just get on a plane and go to Tasmania or something? Lisa and I are doing it now. Oh, why can't we live in Northern Ireland? (laughs) It's so beautiful. We're we're in this kind of romantic, um, glowy sort of phase at the moment. But of course, if we all got on a plane and went to live in Tasmania, there'd be bills to pay. There'd be mould in the shower. There'd be sick kids to look after. They'd, they'd be there just as they are in Sydney. I dream of a past where I fantasise that the problems of the present don't exist and I'm not being wise. And probably what I'm doing in saying, let's all go to Tasmania or let's all live in Northern Ireland, deep down I'm resenting what God is doing with my life right now. I'm saying, God, you don't actually do a very good job ordering and shaping and governing my life. I need to get on aeroplanes more often and try to escape from what you're doing. And what I'm saying is to God, well, I want to move away from a position of thankfulness and joy and wisdom, and I want to go hankering after something else. So there's nostalgia, that need to resist the present, and I think it comes by fantasizing about the past. But guess what? We're also good at resisting the present because we fantasize about the future. Come with me to Ecclesiastes 4.4. Ecclesiastes 4.4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is hard to understand like a mist. This too is mist-like, a chasing after the wind. You can see there that people's futures can get governed by envy. And I think envy is all about the failure to see what's good in this moment and to imagine that good awaits us if only we could become like somebody else. And we find ourselves then driven to create that dream. It's, it's, it's on view again in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw something else that was hard to understand under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is hard to understand, a miserable business. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 exposes the fact that people can work too hard because they just can't make peace with the way things are right now. And the chapter tragically describes that people lose their tranquility. If you read the whole chapter, you'd see that people lose friends, people lose sleep, and people lose their way. And there's something almost comic in the tragedy, isn't it? That this man wakes up and says, all I do is go to work. And and what's the point? And I wonder if you've ever felt like that as well. It's all just sort of work, work, work for some, some nebulous future but it's as though you've stopped actually being present in your own life. Well, the notion of discontent comes up in chapter 5, verse 10 as well. Let's have a look at that. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is puzzling and fleeting and hard to understand like a fog. Nostalgia might be a nuisance, but envy can do real damage. And here we see uh, possessiveness and greed coming in and damaging our lives as well. I've just finished reading an entertaining novel by Alexander McCall Smith. He's that guy who's done the first, the number one ladies detective agency. You're familiar with him? Um, Another one of his books is called The Finer Points of Sausage Dogs. And you can tell from its title it's neither serious nor weighty. Um, He's created a scene in it where where a quirky German linguistics professor unexpectedly finds himself having morning coffee with the Pope. And have a listen to the Pope and what he's got to say about his present experience. The Pope says to this German linguist, It's very good to have the chance to chat to you. I have a wretchedly boring time for the most part. You've got no idea what a tedious life it is being the Pope. I'm totally isolated from the rest of humanity. Do you know how many social invitations I received last year? No? Well, I shall tell you, none. Not one. Nobody dares to invite the Pope to anything. They all assume I would never be able to come or that, would, or that it would be presumptuous to invite me. So I get none. So I sit here most days and play solitaire. That's what I do. I look out of my window... Remember, this is the finer points of sausage dogs. It's not a serious work. I look out of my window and see the Vatican Gardens, he said, the trees, the greenery, the paths where I take my walks, the fountains. And I remember a field behind my house in my native village. And I remember the river beyond beyond it where we used to swim as boys. We had a rope tied onto the branch of a tree and we used to swing out over the water. And I've never had any greater pleasure since then. Never. And I've never had any better friends than I had then. Never. It's it's quirky and funny, but there's something in it, isn't it, about a man who's got to the very top of his profession and there's nothing there. And then he's got nostalgia for a past, but in a sense he's got no present. And maybe this man who's Pope once had ambition, but he's arrived to find himself just playing solitaire. A bit like that man in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 who's very driven to achieve, but who wakes up one day and realises that he's not actually getting what he wants. You see, we can become ambitious because we've got a fantasised view of what the future can be, And then we arrive at that future and we find that it's flawed too and it's full of ambiguity. You see, we fantasise about the future and then we fantasise about our power to manage and control the future and we just drift further and further from what is true and real. So Ecclesiastes warns us not to get into patterns of always setting up a hankering for something else so that we don't actually turn up for our own lives right now. I've got a little cartoon I've got on my notice board in my office that's got a little little boy saying, when I grow up, I'm going to be an artist. And then a middle-aged man saying, when I've got some spare time, I'm going to be an artist. And then an elderly man saying, when I retire, I'm going to be an artist. And then a picture of a man lying flat on his back in a hospital saying, when I get off this life support machine, I'm going to become an artist. And it's there just to remind me, well, why don't you be an artist today if that's really what you want to be? I wonder, do you love the people in your household right now? 
or are you waiting for those better flatmates who are coming? Do you love the people in your church right now or are you waiting for next year when we do that new church plan and, and we're going to get these interesting people who are going to come or, or are you hankering, oh church five years ago, that's when it was good and, and so and so was here, oh that's when I like, oh. and you know what, you just go to church full of resentment with no concern to love the people that God's given you right now. Are you doing that? You're nostalgic about the past, you're fantasising about the future and there's actually somebody right now sitting next to you and God's saying you could love that person today if only you would actually wake up and be here now. Well, if you're one of those people who finds it hard to live in the present because you're always scheming about how your life is going to get better and better, then I think Ecclesiastes 9 is really important for you to take hold of. Let's have a look at 9.11. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. This is very sobering. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. It's almost hard to believe that the Bible would use that language of time and chance but you see what it's driving at. There's, there's so much that can go on in this creation. You could slip over in the snow. You could have a car accident. A train could knock you down. An animal could charge at you. A strange virus could infect you. There's, there's so much in this creation that could affect you and just take control away from you that how dare you think that your own swiftness and your own strength and your own wisdom and your own learnedness are going to be the things that determine your future. You might be strong and swift and clever, but that doesn't mean your life's going to work out and that you're going to succeed and that you're going to be rich and that you're always going to have food to eat. Don't be so simplistic in how you view life. You can see there's great wisdom here. And of course, you know, our hearts toward God are really going to get hard if we deep down think that the race really should be to the swiftest and that the, you know, that the strong should win and that the clever should get lots of acclaim, if we deep down believe that, when that doesn't happen, we're going to resent God and turn on him. It's very, very sobering that we are actually not as much in control as what we would like or what we think. Come back to 7.14 for a very similar verse. 7.14 When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore a man cannot discover anything about his future. That's rather disturbing, isn't it? When times are bad, consider God has made that. God has made the one as well as the other and you cannot discover anything about your future, really. We can want to resist this verse, I think, by having a theology that says, 
Yes, when times are happy, God made those. But when times are bad, well, the devil made those or sin made, you know, they're, they're kind of God's out of the system now. But Ecclesiastes is a lot more courageous in its doctrine of God. God has made the one as well as the other. There's a perennial human problem just below the surface here that it's very hard for us to believe that the messy, difficult, challenging lives that we live have actually come to us from the hands of a God who claims to love us. It's, it's the core problem of theology, really, isn't it? That the messy, difficult, challenging lives we live have come to us from the hands of a God who claims to love us. But the book of Ecclesiastes, and I would argue Proverbs and Job as well, have a radical grasp on the sovereignty of God and the way God does stand behind both good and bad things. And if we come to accept that the details of our lives have come to us from God himself, then I think we can start to be a bit less driven in trying to change everything and we can start to be a bit less busy then and a bit more tranquil and a bit more at peace. Now I was searching for an illustration of this here and I'm not sure if this is the perfect one but um, a couple of, I've seen, read a couple of stories about a fellow called Brother Lawrence who was a, um, a French monk a couple of centuries ago. Now I wouldn't want to commend the whole monastic life to you but he's, he's got some interesting little insights. Apparently he got converted by seeing an autumn tree, a tree in autumn and as he looked at that tree in autumn which was sort of you know, bleak and lifeless he had a sense that come spring it would come back to life again and he just developed this sense of God's good providence. It's a very interesting kind of Ecclesiastes moment. The cycles of life somehow convinced him of something about God. Anyway, Brother Lawrence so much wanted to follow God that he went to live in a monastery um, but he ended up being given the job of cooking food in the kitchen and when you read his writings, he's a bit resentful that some of them get to go off and pray and he's got to cook an omelette for lunch. But then he discovers that he can put the omelette on to cook and while it's cooking on one side, he lies on the floor and praises God for the omelette. And then he gets to his feet and he turns over to the other side and lies on the floor and praises God for the pots and pans that he's got to cook his omelette in. It's quite a lovely picture of somebody who kind of didn't want to be in the kitchen. He resented that that's where God put him but then he thought, well, actually, this is where God has put me. So praise God for the omelette that I'm cooking. Praise God for the pots and pans. And he's written a famous devotional classic called The Practice of the Presence of God. Well, I wonder if at this point you're beginning to step back from my talks and thinking, this is all very interesting, Kirk, but it doesn't exactly fit with everything else that I get at church. Because... You're saying really focus in on the present but shouldn't I also be thinking about heaven and shouldn't I be thinking about hell and shouldn't I be thinking about people's eternal destiny and shouldn't the future really be shaping me as a Christian? And I completely agree, that's right. When you think whole Bible, uh, that's certainly a really important thing. And so Ecclesiastes does get me scratching my head and wondering, how do we pull together this concern that is in the Bible for the future and yet the accent that's in this book about living in the present? 
And one thing that I've just been thinking about that doesn't actually so much arise from Ecclesiastes but just from thinking more big picture is that I wonder if prayer is part of the dynamic here. Prayer is that practice that um, allows us to say to God the future really does matter but it's completely outside my power but it is in your power. So prayer is that that practice that lets us say, yes, the future does matter, but I don't control it, you control it. And so I'm going to pray about things. And prayer also is that practice that allows us to connect to the past in a way that's real. Because in prayers we thank God for things that have happened in the past and we ask forgiveness for the sins that we've committed in the past. But I was just thinking about the Lord's Prayer that Yes, you pray for forgiveness and you pray that God's kingdom will come. But in a way you do all of that so that right now God will give you his daily bread and that right now you can do his will on earth as it is in heaven. So even in the, in the Lord's Prayer there's this lovely melding of past and present and future. So perhaps when you go to the Bible as a whole and think about past, present and future and the way it teaches about us, one thing it says to us is yes, you can think about the future, but realise that it's in God's hands. And to realise that as human beings, as we think about the future, we can go wrong and we can become anxious or controlling and we can be worried and fearful and so on. And so we're to pray and not be anxious. That's the advice of the Bible overall. And I think prayer gets us back then to the here and now with its mouldy showers, bills to pay and sick children and helps us to be alive to God right now. Prayer is one thing in the Bible that holds past, present and future together. And maybe the wisdom writers would embrace that with their category of fearing God. I reckon the person who fears God is really a person who prays. But the accent of the book of Ecclesiastes isn't really there. The accent is on joy. And that's why it was great to have Ecclesiastes 9. Have a look with me at Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Some people think the writer of Ecclesiastes is just a hedonist who's lost his way. But I think, and it, it can seem like that at the beginning because he says, oh, there's nothing better than to eat and drink, you know, as though, well, what, what are you going to do in this crazy life? But as the book goes on, I reckon he starts to actually command us to be joyful. And here it is, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. And it's not hedonism. Hedonism is when food and wine are what you trust in for happiness. But what this verse is about is about trusting in God for happiness. For it is now that God favours what you do. I think in Ecclesiastes, food and wine are almost like sacraments. Like we use bread and wine to symbolise the body and blood of Jesus. In Ecclesiastes, bread and wine symbolise the very goodness of God, who is the gift giver. Which is, I think you can probably pull all that together in quite a profound way. So go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white which I think is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, like the clothes that you wear. Always anoint your head with oil. He's saying, 
have a good haircut. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life. Now there's a moment where surely the translators had a problem as they wrote the word meaningless. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Is that meaningless? No way. No way is that meaningless. But it is fleeting. It's not going to last. So you better enjoy it. So if you've got a good friend sitting next to you now, they may not be sitting next to you tomorrow. So enjoy them today. Be a good friend. Be real in that relationship today because it's fleeting. For this is your lot in life. Now lot, in the way I read the word lot, it sounds like something you sort of got stuck with that you didn't really want. But the Hebrew could also be inheritance. For this is your inheritance in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you are going there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. We're going to think about Ecclesiastes and death tomorrow, so I'll leave the thoughts there. But just notice how much joy and engagement there is in the present there, and just how much God richly provides for us. Now some people would say the writer of Ecclesiastes only gives us this advice because he has a defective view of the afterlife. And I can take that point to some extent, that the Old Testament's view of the afterlife is not as developed as the news. But nevertheless, somebody like the Apostle Paul, who has a very developed view of the afterlife, still holds that we can enjoy right now. Um, 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says that we should put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's just like Ecclesiastes. Even the Apostle Paul speaks like this. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6.17 Well, I think I've gone five or six minutes without Michael Lunig, so he's back. He's written a poem called Rejoice, and it's got, um, it's got this notion of ration in it, which I think is a bit like the Ecclesiastes, the lot or the inheritance. And like the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's aware of how ambiguous and complex everything is, but still how you just get on and engage. He writes this. The people in this world, including you, they are your humble ration in this life. This flaky, raggle-taggle, motley crew, your nasty husband and your silly wife, your lovely wife, your darling husband too, your happy neighbour sobbing on all fours. Oh, the sweet and feeble things they do. You are theirs, alas, and they are yours, and you are yours as well, and you are you, and all that's left of you, your dwindling passion. Rejoice, rejoice, whatever else you do. Rejoice and nibble sweetly on your ration. That's lovely advice. Well, our last joy passage, Ecclesiastes 5. They're dotted everywhere through the book. Ecclesiastes 5. Verse 18. 5.18. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given to him for this is his portion, his inheritance. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his portion and to be happy in his work, 
This is a gift of God. Then verse 20. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. This verse is quite amazing, I think. It gives us permission to say, hey, life is complicated, why don't we order a pizza? I think that's actually really good theology. Life is complicated, so why don't we order a pizza? And I, I don't think this verse is saying, don't think about life. We see in verse 20 that he seldom reflects on the days of his life. I think given that that verse is embedded in a very deep meditation on life, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, I think what it's saying is we have to reach a point where we can leave our big questions to one side because we realise just how small we are and we're not always wrestling with predestination and determinism and human choice and all, all the big questions. Sometimes we set them aside and we ask someone to pass us a piece of pizza. Sometimes we set aside the really big things that we can't control and that we can't know and we just relax and enjoy the gifts that God has for us. Have a listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. He says about John the Baptist whose lifestyle was more austere than his. He said, For John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Is that part of your portrait of Jesus? That there's enough in his behaviour that people are accusing him of being a glutton. There's enough in his behaviour that people are accusing him of being a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He seems to be out there in the world eating and engaging with life, doesn't he? And Jesus ends his, the verse here, it's in Matthew 11, 18 and 19. He says, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. It's amazing that he goes into wisdom language in the context of eating and drinking. Wisdom is proved right by her actions. And I think he could be saying, look, I'm showing my wisdom in eating and drinking and engaging with people and being at dinner parties. I'm actually showing you that I understand life. He may even be more than that saying, can't you see that I am wisdom itself come in the flesh in my engagement with this creation? So I would imagine if Jesus lived in our kind of culture, he would at times say, pass the pizza. And we should say, pass the pizza. And I'll try and be culturally appropriate. Let's have a bit of a wee bit of crack. But as we say, pass the pizza, we should also say, and thank you, God, for the pizza and the crack and the cheese and the cows and the grass and the sun and, in, and the water. And in leaving the insoluble questions of time in the hands of the God of eternity, we find ourselves occupied not with nostalgia for the past, not with envy and drivenness about the future, but as the Bible says, with gladness of heart, right now. Let's pray.
Lord, help us to realise that it is good and proper for us to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our labour under the sun. And Lord, thanks for those times when you give us wealth and possessions and you enable us to enjoy them. Thanks for those days when we're happy in our work and we see it as the gift of God. And thank you for those times when you so fill us with a sense of your goodness that you don't occupy us with all these really tough questions in our minds, but you just occupy us with gladness of heart. Thank you. Amen.